This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're on vacation this week, but we hope you'll enjoy this compilation of a couple of our favorite interviews from the PW Radio archives. Here are two from the vaults, journalist and National Book Award winner Masha Gessen and romance novelist Alyssa Cole. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Masha Gessen on the line. Her new book is The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. Hello, Masha. So glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. So first, I we have to congratulate you on being a National Book Award finalist for nonfiction, which was just announced. Um, uh, Got to ask, what were your first thoughts uh, that came to mind? <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> um, so there's, there's actually, I, I can probably say a little bit more about this than most, um, finalists because, uh, you know, because in addition to sort of awe, I had, um, I had a very strong reaction of disbelief. Um, and that has to do with the fact that I had, uh, I was the chair of the nonfiction jury last year. Right. And I came away with a conclusion, and I told my publisher this, I said, you know, a Russia book is never going to make the long list of the National Book Award, never mind win the National Book Award, because um, you see what happens is all, all of the nonfiction books uh, are in, the, in one category mm-hmm. for the National Book Awards, unlike, say, the Pulitzers. And, um, and so, you, you know, you see these, like, last year it was 525 books. Wow. Right. And and you immediately uh, in my mind, I mean, this is obviously not what's happened in other years, but this is my solipsism. So in my in my mind, um, a lot of the really lovely, uh, more sort of personal books or books that are just small in scope, immediately had to cede to the bigger books and the more ambitious books. Right, and um, you know, which is not to say that more ambitious books are are necessarily more important or by any means better, right? It's just that um, you kind of, because you only can give one a word, um, right. you, you tend to privilege something that's that's sort of monumental. And then there's so many books that, um, that tackle uh, sort of the condition of this country, the history of this country, that really aim to change the way that we think about certain key concepts. And like last year, you know, we gave the award to this amazing book, um, called Stamp from the Beginning, the Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, um, which I thought was hugely important because it really, it really does change the way you think about racism. And it's a book that hadn't even been reviewed in the New York Times and that a lot of people wouldn't have read. I think, you know, hardly anybody would have read it. It was a book written by a young academic, um, if we hadn't drawn attention to it. And there are actually many books like that. They're like books that you look at and you think everyone should read this book. And if I don't do something, 
uh, then most people are not going to hear about it. And I think that 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 tendency, you know, that feeling is more urgent when it concerns this country, hmm. uh, as as well it should be. Uh, obviously, you know, they're they're like these days there are weird um, perils and weird urgencies that cross over from Russia to this country, which is something I didn't expect at all when I was writing this book. Right. Uh, but anyway, I'm you know I, I, I'm in total disbelief, and obviously very happy because the news um, I learned the news actually on publication date. Um, which was October third, and um, and they announced what was made the next day. Yeah, that is pretty pretty amazing. I, I don't know of many many writers who <laughs> would have uh, celebrated the publication date the next day, um, received word of of nomination for an award. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so, well, let's talk a little bit about the book. And, and you begin it, or at least uh, a chapter in, with a reference to George Orwell's 1984, saying uh, in the book that, that that this book could not be published in a society that is that uh, that is uh, that it's describing. Uh, so, tell us about the book's significance. That is uh, Orwell's 1984, and of a journalist named Andre uh, Amalric. Amalric, yeah. So, uh, so tell us about uh, about the significance of George R. Wells in, in the opening of your book. Um, so, I set out to write uh, the definitive book on Russia, as people do every couple of years, and uh, uh, and uh, and I wanted to 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 look at the last thirty years to try to understand how democracy didn't happen. And um, and because my hypothesis was really that I was writing about trauma, uh, historical trauma, cultural trauma, societal trauma, right? Um, I I needed to to do it from um, from the inside of people's heads. And for the, the the main four people in the book who allowed me into their heads for long periods at a time. Uh, to, 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 to try to carry out this project were born in the 1980s. This was by design, uh, the mid 1980s. Um, this was by design, um, because, um, I wanted people who grew up in the 1990s, who were children in the 1990s, whose personalities were formed in the 1990s. And I wanted, um, to convey the cacophony of the 1990s, um, in order to explain, to, to explain what I was trying to explain. So um, once I sort of settled on my characters, uh, I realized that two of them were born in 1984. And I thought, how perfect. Right. Uh, because, <laughs> uh, because, um, because I was actually going to be going back to two books with 1984 in the title. Um, one is George Orwell's 1984, um, which... Um, describes many things, I think, about a totalitarian society uh, with incredible precision. But probably the most important for this book is doublethink. Mm. Right? Uh, and doublethink is a term that I believe he originated and that um, the socio- a sociologist, who is one of uh, another main character in the book, um, continues to, goes back to over and over again to explain and to understand Mm-hmm. Sort of what um, what has happened in Russia, and basically to, to, to make a long story short, what um, double think is important because it is a a very important survival mechanism developed by people living in a in a uh, under conditions of state terror. 
Um, and the other book with 1984 in the title is Andrea Maldrick's book, Will the Soviet Union Survive Until 1984? Um, it was a self-published essay uh, in the 1960s. I thought, uh, I, I mean, I, I had read it before, and I reread it again when I was researching this book. And every time I read it, I'm just um, flabbergasted by its brilliance. It's, um, I mean, to imagine that somebody was writing in the Soviet Union in the 1960s, when most people really and truly believed that the Soviet Union was going to last forever. And um, and he, Amadik, um suggested that um, that the Soviet regime was much more fragile than people believed, and that part of the reason that it was fragile um, was because it, the ideology did not actually have hold of people's hearts and minds, uh, which is, of course, the opposite of what the regime wanted you to think. It's the opposite of what Sovietologists in the West thought. They were really surprised to discover how mutable people's beliefs were. Um, I think... Uh, you know, I would take it much further and say that ideology actually isn't terribly important to the kind of uh, totalitarian controls that exist in the Soviet Union. Um, but in any case, Amalric's essay um, was perhaps the first suggestion from inside the Soviet Union that the regime was fragile. And so I thought both of those books were, were great starting points, especially since I was starting with people born in 1984. So tell us about these four young main characters that you structure the book around. So um, my criteria for um, for choosing people who would, uh, through whose eyes I would tell the story, um, I, I needed people, I wanted them to talk about, uh, you know, on the one hand, aspiring to be rich and trying to figure out what that was like, um, which was the condition of the country at the time, like people... Uh, wealth became um, the, the the ultimate goal uh, of it seemed like everyone in the country and the country itself, which for a country uh, indoctrinated or we thought indoctrinated with communist ideology was was an incredible sort of uh, break with with the past. Um, and uh, but also at the same time to be watching Soviet movies and television, and this I thought was hugely important. Because, uh, you know, we all kind of assume, and by we all, I mean Western observers and Moscow intellectuals, and it happened to be both, um, we all kind of assumed that there would be some sort of decommunization, uh, in Russia after the Soviet Union, like denazification. But imagine a, you know, a post-Hitler Germany with, uh, Nazi propaganda films on TV all the time. And what that does to a young person's mind, especially when that young person is observing his parents or her parents being, um, Alternately, uh, alternately, you know, successful and disoriented and struggling and frightened and elated. Um, and in general, you know, having sort of a cacophonous and emotionally intensive experience on the one hand. And then there's this incredible clarity in Soviet propaganda films mm-hmm. on the other. Um, so I wanted that. I wanted, um, uh, I wanted people who remembered 1991 in some way or another, for whom it was an important childhood memory. Um, and I wanted people whose lives had changed as a result of the crackdown that began in 2012. I also needed people who sort of came from different um, socioeconomic strata because I really wanted to show something that I think is greatly underappreciated in the West, at least outside of academic circles, which is just how stratified Soviet society was, uh, how this, this, this classless society 
was just profoundly class-based and um, and how important that legacy is to, to, to contemporary Russia. And I needed at least one of these people to be gay. And finally, uh, and perhaps most important, I needed people who were willing to sit down for this exercise uh, you know, and talk to me um, over and over again. Uh, there were, uh, I, I spent different amounts of time with different uh, characters, I and mean, I call them characters, but they're real people. Um, but the, the, the most, I think, the, the person that I spent the most time with, I think, must have given me 35, 40 hours of interview time. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and put up with really bizarre questions like, uh, like, what do you, you know, what do you remember seeing on television in 1991? And what do you remember seeing next? And, you know, what were you wearing? And what did you see out your kitchen window, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so that, uh, you know, most people actually, I think, wouldn't be willing to do that. Uh, and I was incredibly lucky that, um, uh, th- that I had four very generous characters uh, who sat down for this with me. So, so before I, I, we want to talk a little bit about the characters, but, but just to, uh, 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 just to describe that moment on uh, August 19, 1991, they will have all, they would have all remembered uh, Swan Lake being aired uh, continually. Um, and, this was really, uh, I was there in 1992, uh, and this really was a break from Soviet to a whole new Russia. So as you had mentioned, these four would not have any memory of, of the time before any kind of memory of Soviet Russia, other than the, what they, as you said, the propaganda they saw or through the memories of their, of their, uh, parents. Um, so, so just tell us a little bit about this watershed, um, year. Uh, what led up to it and how it changed. So starting in um, the mid-1980s, Mikhail Gorbachev undertook a series of reforms uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, and he didn't mean to end the Soviet regime. He meant meant to make it viable, uh, more viable. Uh, But of course, it began crumbling. Um, But it devolved into um, an ongoing power struggle, basically between Gorbachev and on the one hand, um, Soviet hardliners, uh, particularly the KGB, who were opposed to all of his reforms. And on the other hand, Yeltsin and the people he represented, who thought that he wasn't going far enough, who wanted, um, you know, a complete conversion to market, uh, to, to, to market economy and a total end to censorship. And Gorbachev was actually unable or unwilling to go that far. And so in their, from their point of view, uh, he was sort of zigzagging between them and the hardliners. Uh, and in, um, in August 91, the hardliners staged a coup. Uh, they deposed Gorbachev or they placed him under house arrest. And Yeltsin fought back on behalf of Gorbachev. Uh, but one and and one the the coup folded after three days and uh, and uh, after three days it looked if at first it looked menacing and it looked like like the worst that we, uh, all of us had expected that it was all going to fail and we were just going to go back to the Soviet Union as it had been uh, and then suddenly it looked like laughable um, and. Uh, after the coup folded and Gorbachev came back to Moscow, having been released from house arrest, Yeltsin basically made it clear that he had won the power struggle. Hmm. 
he hadn't actually uh, defended Russian democracy on behalf of Gorbachev. Uh, he expected Gorbachev to go much further, and in fact, as it turned out a few months later, he, he expected Gorbachev to resign because Yeltsin negotiated the dissolution of the Soviet Union, to his great credit, the peaceful dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, and um, once the country ceased to exist, the uh, the leader of the country lost his job. So, um, to Western observers and to Moscow intellectuals, uh, that moment seemed like the triumph of democracy and, uh, and a break with the past and the beginning of a glorious democratic era. To a lot of other Russians, I think it actually looked different. I think it looked like um, a power struggle in which one former apparatchik beat another former apparatchik. And I think that view is, in hindsight, more accurate. Uh, Yeltsin did not have the intention of dissolving all Soviet institutions, which is not to say that he wasn't committed to ideals of democracy. He very much was. But in his mind, um, that meant uh, going to a market system, lifting censorship, but it did not mean uh, dissolving Soviet ministries. It did not mean um, uh, getting people who had been in leadership in the Soviet Union, out of power, did not even mean getting rid of the Communist Party, and it most importantly, to my mind, didn't mean reckoning with the past and having a public conversation about the history of terror. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Masha Gessen, author of The Future is History, discussing the fall of the Soviet Union. So uh, these two different perspectives, how did they come out in the interviews that you did for this book? I, I was interested in knowing how these young people uh, observed their parents' uh, behavior. So um, th- they saw their parents scared, angry, and disappointed uh, as a result of the, 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 during the coup and, and after the coup. I mean, one of the uh, one of the characters is uh, Boris Nemtsov's daughter, Zhanna, and I think that uh, Nemtsov certainly was belonged to the camp of people who thought this was a final break with the past, and now there was going to be a glorious era of democracy. He was a political activist, and he was shortly afterward appointed um, governor of the Nizhny Novgorod region, which launched his illustrious political career, and for nearly a decade, Russians were convinced that he was going to be the country's next president. And of course, toward the end of the book, as we all know, he, he ends up being assassinated. Um, and other, another character, Masha, saw her mother just just furious. She just wanted to get out of the country. She knew that there was nothing good was ever going to happen here. Um, she was in the process of getting Masha her foreign travel passport, and she just she she was I think mostly mad at the coup for interfering with her plans to finally get out. And 
she never did emigrate. Um, but I, I also, uh, the other three characters in the book are intellectuals. And um, what I was, uh, into particular kinds of intellectuals of an older generation, or actually of a couple of older generations. And what I was trying to pursue with those characters um, was uh, something that I, I think runs through the, the book, which is the, the understanding that unless you have the intellectual tools of interpreting what happens in your country, you can't change what happens in your country. Uh, a society, just like a person who can't understand themselves, can't move forward. And in Soviet society, the social sciences had been uh, quite purposefully and consciously destroyed. And this meant that uh, social scientists were exiled or imprisoned, and it was the, the study of sociology, the study of psychoanalysis, the study of philosophy to a great extent, except for Marxist philosophy, was banned. You couldn't get books. You had to have special access to special libraries, and even they had a very limited selection. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm, I was uh, one of the characters is uh, a great Russian sociologist who was working with even with an even more great Soviet sociologist, Yuri Levada, and they uh, they had been allowed to come out sort of from the underground a couple of years earlier and to conduct their first survey. And they had the hypothesis that uh, Homo Sovieticus, a kind of Soviet man shaped by the years of state terror, was uh, on his way out and because it had been 30 years since the end of terror. And that once Homo Sovieticus uh, sort of died out, then Soviet, the Soviet Union would crumble and so, because Soviet institutions rested on Homo Sovieticus. And that's what they thought happened in 1991. When they went back to um, conduct the survey again in 94 and then again in 99 and, and so on, uh, they discovered they had been wrong. They discovered that what they described as Homo Sovieticus was actually um, a, a type of person, a type of cultural institution that was incredibly resilient. And as they said in 94, Homo Sovieticus is surviving. And as they said in 99, Homo Sovieticus is not only thriving, but reproducing. Uh, and that they think, and I think, has a lot to do with why um, Putinism has been so successful in calling forth many of the habits and, and, and customs and norms of a totalitarian society. I feel like this ties into what you said about writing about trauma and the effects of trauma of living through this traumatic time, because those can be very lingering effects. And there's a great deal of scientific evidence showing that trauma can be inherited sometimes even at the genetic level. Is that a factor in this sociological research? Um, so I, um, I tried to follow the thinking of, of the one sociologist and one psychoanalyst. I, when I originally set out to write the book, I actually thought that I would probably use the genetic research as well, the genetic research done in, in Israel um, and I think in, maybe in a couple of other places, but primarily in Israel, on uh, the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. I, uh, and I've, I've, I've written about medical genetics in the past quite extensively, uh, so I, I was aware of the research. I didn't actually end up using it, um, because, uh, in the end I stuck very closely to 
uh, what was perceived by you know, people on the ground. And so, and the sociological research on Russian material and the psych- psychoanalytic conversations uh, provided me with plenty of material. But um, an example of what I'm talking about is uh, the psycho- psychoanalyst, who is one of the main characters in the book, um, describes how she was working with various families uh, suffering the after effects of Soviet terror, like every Soviet family, right, or post-Soviet family. But so this one particular family, for example, um, a woman came in to talk about her daughter. Uh, it was sort of a standard Russian household um, with, with women of three different generations, or rather an older woman, a middle-aged woman, and a little girl all living together. And uh, the little girl kept doing inexplicable stuff, like setting the curtains on fire or locking her grandmother out on the balcony in the cold. And so very quickly, obviously, they got down to uh, the idea that um, that the little girl was expressing her mother's aggression toward her own mother, right? Some, uh, something that, that the mother was uh, too obedient and well-behaved uh, to express herself. But as they dug deeper, they also discovered that the grandmother had been a guard in the gulag. And the little girl was unconsciously acting out a torture practice from the gulag, locking somebody out in the cold. And I think that that, that's, that, that story to me is kind of a metaphor for the whole book. Uh, it's an entire society that is unconsciously acting out behaviors from a much darker time, when a time when, when Russia actually had an actual totalitarian regime, uh, actually enforcing state terror. It doesn't have that now, but it still has a totalitarian society. The subtitle of your book is How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. What's been happening recently, and what are some of the unexpected parallels that you found with recent events in America? (laughs) Um, uh, I'd say that the biggest parallels have to do with Putin's appeal, right? Uh, When Putin cracked down um, and he... um, he cracked down in 2012 in response to the popular protests of 2011-2012. And I think he changed the nature of his regime from basically an authoritarian regime, a regime uh, where that is, that is depoliticized, where people are expected to stay home while a ruler or a group of rulers plunder the country. That's authoritarianism. Totalitarianism is kind of the opposite. Everything is political. There is no private realm. And citizens are actually expected to be out in the streets or out in public squares expressing their support for the great leader. So Russia went from being an authoritarian society to being a totalitarian society in, 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 in some key ways. Um, after, uh, after Putin cracked down and, and really started to mobilize the country. And I th- where I see parallels with, with what is happening in the United States you know, given that we're talking about completely different uh, sets of institutions and, and, and customs and historical legacies, right, and political culture. Um, but what's interesting is that um, the way that uh, the reasons that Putin, uh, that Putin's mobilization is so compelling to people is because they felt so destabilized and disoriented uh, in the 1990s. 
it's what um, the, the, the social psychologist Eric Frum, uh, who I think is, is slowly coming back into vogue uh, because his writing is actually incredibly relevant um, to, to, to the present moment. But um, one of his books is Escape from Freedom, and he wrote it in 1940, and it's about um, Hitler's coming to power. And the theory that he lays out in that book is that um, there, there are times in human history when freedom becomes too much to bear. Because freedom, he says, comes in two kinds. It comes in the kind of freedom from freedom from constraints, uh, you know, freedom from having your parents tell you what to do, which is always what we want. Uh, but then there's also freedom too, freedom to invent yourself, freedom to construct your own future. And that's much more difficult, and it's not something that most people want most of the time. And when it becomes incumbent on people to really invent themselves uh, because societies change in in, in, in profound ways, uh, and he begins with the end of feudalism. He talks about how people were no longer born into you know, a particular trade, or they could no longer be sure that they would live the rest of their lives in the on the street on which they were born and, or in the village in which they were born. Once that happened, uh, when that happened for a large number of people, freedom too became an unbearable burden. And, and so he explains, for example, the rise of Calvinism, um, by, uh, by this need to, to find a leader who will take your agency away and mobilize you, uh, in, in, in favor of something. And usually that something has to do with an imaginary past. And then he fast-forwards to the 1920s and 30s in Europe and sort of describes that moment as that kind of moment, right? When, when, when people were displaced, disoriented, and robbed of a, of a clear vision of the future, and freedom, too, became too much. And so someone like Hitler held great appeal. Um, so when I was writing the book, I was focusing on that uh, theory quite a bit. Um, and... It's clear how Putin sort of taps into this great nostalgia for a past that never was, when Russia was great, when everybody was comfortable, when things were clear, when you didn't have to make too many decisions and you were taken care of. Uh, and, of course, I think that Trump appeals to the same kind of need, uh, and he very similarly talks about an imaginary past greatness. Um, and you know, some vision of a past that never was, but we know we were comfortable in that past and we we're great. So I, I, w- I wanted to ask, so as we're drawing parallels between re- regimes or governments that are changing, uh, you know, perhaps slowly, perhaps quickly, but unawares to others, um, does, does the Mueller investigation re- really matter? And what should we be? What is Trump doing while the U.S. is following this? Um, so uh, I think the Mueller investigation matters because truth matters. Um, but I think that there is uh, that we have as a society an unhealthy obsession with that investigation, uh, for, and I think it's unhealthy for two reasons. One is that um, it it focuses our attention on something hidden, on secrets, rather than what's out uh, what's out in the open. And there's so much awful stuff out in the open. Uh, American institutions and American democracy itself possibly are being destroyed in front of our very eyes. And Putin is not doing it. It's Trump doing it, and, and, and his people are doing it. And so I think we should be, because human beings don't have 
endless attention spans and endless bandwidth, we need to be engaging with that. We need to be engaging with what's out and open rather than uh, what what's hidden and can be revealed. And a related problem, I think, with with the focus of the investig on the investigation is that there's magical thinking involved. Uh, people think that once Mueller comes back with his conclusions, somehow our national nightmare will be over. And it won't. Even if, and I think this is extremely unlikely, but even if he finds definitive proof of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin, even then there's no clear path to to impeachment. But as I said, I think it's 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 exceedingly unlikely. I think he's going to come back with a lot of really unsavory stuff, a lot of loose ends, a lot of questionable contacts, a lot of things that we really wish hadn't happened, but no conclusive evidence of a collusion. And it sounds like your research really points to issues of of individual expectations and experiences of government and of what government is for this this idea of of the unbearable nature of freedom and sometimes just wanting someone to point you in a direction and tell you what to do is not something that's going to change even when the people in power change so what shapes a society in a direction that makes totalitarianism less appealing and maybe less possible. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that in the states we're in danger of descending into totalitarianism because I think to establish a totalitarian society, um, there does have to be state terror. You can't just like whip people into a frenzy of totalitarianism. Uh, the classic definition of totalitarianism always involves state terror. Uh, my argument in the book is that because Russia has already had state terror, it has left such an imprint and has created um, such mechanisms of survival that it's very easy for someone like Putin to tap into that quite economically, right? It's his power resource. He has to arrest only a few people in order to communicate to tens of millions of people that they have to start uh, acting in perfect accordance with the Kremlin's vaguely expressed wishes. Right. Um, that can't happen in a society like the United States. You have to have people conditioned to, to receive those kinds of t signals first. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't descend into a kind of autocracy. That actually is, uh, uh, it's, it, it doesn't take away nearly as many individual freedoms. It is infinitely preferable to live uh, in a tyranny uh, to living in a, in a totalitarian regime, um, but um, and I think you know I think Trump has uh, has every chance of of establishing a kind of autocracy, a kind of tyranny in this country, and I think that the way to fight it is not by trying to discredit Trump, is not by um, and I think this was Hillary Clinton's great mistake. Um, it's not. It's not by even by sort of fighting him on policy, although that's certainly something that the politicians should be doing. I think that the way to fight it is to engage with the need that brought him to power in the first place, and that's a need for the for vision of the future. And I think that's the thing that wasn't really coming from Hillary Clinton's campaign. Uh, I think that Bernie's campaign had a bit more of it. 
right? But the messaging, if you think about it, uh, you know, Trump was saying, let's go back to an imaginary past when we were great and everything was wonderful. And Hillary was saying, we're great because we're good, meaning things are great just the way they are, which explicitly did not address the needs of people for whom things aren't great the way they are. And um, and I think the way to address those needs is not by saying that we'll bring back more jobs, but to really imaginatively engage with the changes that are happening in the world and to you know, to talk about a post-work economy, to talk about the things that Hillary, as it turns out, now that we've read her book, um, chose not to talk about, even though they were on her mind, like universal basic income. Right? That would have been a conversation about the future. We've been talking with Masha Gessen, and you can find her book, The Future is History, in stores right now. Masha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Don't go away. We've got another great interview from the archives coming up right after this break. I'm Bill Goldstein, author of The World Broken 2, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Alyssa Cole on the line. Her new book is An Extraordinary Union. Hello, Alyssa. So glad you could join us from Martinique. Hi. Thank you guys for having me. So your novel is set in the Civil War era South. Tell us about the the two main characters, uh, Ellen Burns, who goes by Elle, and uh, Malcolm McCall. So Elle is a free black woman um, who is living in the North, and uh, she has a photographic memory. She decides to use this uh, gift that she has in order to aid the Union, and she becomes a spy. Um, She poses as a slave in a Confederate senator's household in Richmond, and there she meets Malcolm McCall, who she first believes to be a Confederate soldier, but who she discovers is also an undercover Union spy, a Pinkerton detective. So so give us the setting. Uh, you say it's in Richmond, Virginia. Um, tell us a little bit about this. I mean, this this in the um, uh, at this uh, politician's house. Tell us who the politician is and what is the house? Where does he live? Um, so he lives in Richmond. He's a his name is Senator McCaffrey. Um, and this is a fictional character, although both Ellen and Malcolm are based on um real Civil War spot Union spies. Um, and this character is a Union, a Confederate senator who has moved to Richmond um, to take part in government. Um, his house, it's not his true house, but he has moved his household with him and some of his slaves with him and um, had to bring in new workers, local workers, and that is how um, Elle gets to infiltrate the household. And how did Elle and Malcolm decide to become spies? And you said that Elle has this gift and she wants to use it for the Union. What's Malcolm's story? Um, Malcolm is, uh, he is originally Scottish from Scotland, and his family was driven out during the clearances. Um, So they they came to America by force, basically, and he kind of is driven by that desire to live in a country where people are free and where the, um, I guess, where 
people don't have to fear the, the same kind of things that his family faced in Scot in Scotland. And um, how hard is it for Elle to pose as a slave after being a, a free woman? And um, how hard is it for her to pose as mute? And why is that necessary for her subterfuge? Okay, so um, Elle's particular backstory is that because she had a photographic memory, she was kind of um, tele taken around on the abolitionist circuit and shown as um, kind of a specimen of, uh, you know, that black people could have the capacity to be intelligent. And um, so for her, posing as a slave is particularly hard because she, number one, she's extremely intelligent, um, she's independent, and also she does not like being treated uh as less than, like, as most people wouldn't like that. Sure. Um, so for her, for her, it's particularly hard. And also she has this background of kind of being um, a specimen for, for other people. Um, and she poses as mute because she has kind of a smart mouth, I guess. And so um, she's the, she's a spy for a secret society um, called the Loyal League. And her, commander basically has told her that she needs to pose as mute because he doesn't want her to blow the mission. So tell us about how she, I guess, came to be a spy. You mentioned this, uh, this group who she's spying for. Who are they and what are their plans? I mean, what is, what is the uh, ultimate consequence that they hope? The Loyal League is an African-American secret society, and their purpose is to gather information to aid the union, because, of course, by aiding the union, their ultimate goal is to um, bring about the end of slavery in the United States. And um, they are based, this group, the Loyal League, they were real Loyal Leagues, and uh, they, they, so it's based on actual historical groups that... Um, I guess in most cities, any city where there were black people, there were generally groups, some more organized than others, some kind of based in, uh, you know, European secret societies. Uh, there are Freemasons. So there were many um, groups of African-Americans who worked together and also with abolitionists and with other groups to try to help bring about the end of slavery. And... Um Give us a sense of how these groups all work together um, or whether there was coordination, because it seems to me that in a place like Richmond, where there was so much going on related to the war and related to the Confederacy, there must have been a lot of people with similar goals kind of converging on the city and uh, and trying to, to bring about their own uh, end goals, their own desires. Um, these groups generally operated... Um they were coordinated, like I said, some more than others. Um, some ways that they worked were, for example, some people would gather information from slaves and they would pass those on to um, the Union troops who could then pass it on to Washington or they had their own ways of getting the messages to the Capitol. Um, a lot of it, uh, a lot of the work was also, you know, helping escape slaves, um, helping the black communities where they were whether they were slave or free or a mix of both. And um, so, yeah, the organization, I guess it was obviously harder. They didn't have the Internet and Twitter and things like that. Um, 
But in a place like Richmond, there were there were a lot of unionists. Um, there were more in other places, but um, it was slightly it was made more difficult because there were also more, you know, Confederates, and <laughs> they had to be very careful about how they interacted with each other and um, how they passed information along and who they passed information along to because, of course, there were also Confederate spies who would be trying to catch them. So uh, we've talked a lot about the historical dimension of the book. Tell us about the romantic dimension and the challenges that Al and Malcolm face once they realize that their connection is more than just two spies working toward the same end. Um, yeah, so the, rom- the romance in the book is... Um, Obviously, during that time period, there were interracial relationships. There were also uh, there is also the fact that many black women were raped by their slave owners and by white men, and so there's this kind of thing that looms over them. That um, basically, the way it's up is that he sees her and he's like, "Oh yeah, this is it," and she is very reluctant because she's well aware of the fact that. Um, in society, no matter, even if he does actually care about her, which he doesn't entirely trust because his job is lying, um, no matter no matter what he says or believes, that society will always place him above her and he will always kind of have that power over her, even if he doesn't want that power. So that's something that um, they need to work through. So how does their relationship evolve? Uh, their relationship involve, evolves as they work together. They grow closer. They start making discoveries that um, they would not have been able to make on their own. And they, st- they start to see that they work well together as a team, um, as spies, and also perhaps as something more. Uh, as And so basically the evolution of the relationship is kind of a push and pull, but it's also it's all lowering her defenses, I guess, but also Malcolm realizing more clearly why she needs those defenses and um, why he could be dangerous for her, even if he does care about her. So um, I'm very impressed that you've managed to take this historical setting and a time of such tremendous racial and gender inequality and still basically have a, a workplace romance. Uh, they, <laughs> you, you have these you, you have these two people um, who could be seen as having very different stature, but but at, at sort of at the core, they're colleagues, um, yes. and that lets them see each other as as equals. Was that like a a goal that you had starting out, or um, is that just how the story evolved? Um, that's just how the story evolved, um, because basically. And it's funny because I don't know if you saw on Twitter this week, there was kind of the hashtag black women at work, mm-hmm. which kind of talks about all of the microaggressions and um, other things that black women at work face while working. And I was thinking that this is kind of like a black women at work historical because a lot of the things that Elle faces, it's not only that she's a black, it's also that she's a woman. Um, like, for example, some of her fellow spies perhaps thinking that she wouldn't do as well, even though she is um, she has more skill than them. And like just her photographic memory alone is something that makes her uh, really valuable to them. So um, it's something that kind of just evolved as the story went along her. 
their work relationship was just totally tied into their romantic relationship in a way. So how did how did you come across these characters? How did you what inspired you to create these characters? You said they were based on uh, real people. So um, I started this book in 2013. It was my NaNoWriMo 2013 uh, project, and it was for the years. Before that, I had been reading um, Ta-Nehisi Coates' blog on The Atlantic. Mm. I was a huge fan of that. And um, for a period, he did a deep dive into Civil War era. Um, and, you know, he, ca- he covered various stages of history. And I think for a few years, I was just kind of uh, collecting all of these things in my brain. Because when I first, my first books were not historical. They were contemporary. I still write other genres, but I kind of, even though I loved historical romance, I was always like, I don't know if I want to write historical romance. Uh, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on when you start thinking about outside of white people, which is what most historical romance has been thus far. Mm-hmm. And it was like, do I really want to like deep dive into history and kind of because so much research goes into these books that, like, you know, you're going to learn a lot of things that you don't want to know um, or that you wish, you know, hadn't happened. So basically this came out about because um, he had been talking about the Civil War and I I started thinking, OK, I'm going to write historical romances. And I was like, I'm not going to write Civil War historical romance. I was like, I think I can write anything else but Civil War historical romance because there's so much going on. And um, so my first idea was for... Um, I did a a Revolutionary War anthology featuring um, people who, you know, whose stories don't usually get told. Um, but before I wrote that, I NaNoWriMo arrived and I kind of had an idea for this Civil War story. And I said, well, since it's 30 days, I'll see what I can write in 30 days. I have this idea. I'm going to go for it. And it actually turned out really well. And I found that it wasn't as difficult uh, to write as I thought it would be, or not that it wasn't as difficult. I guess um, I was more excited about writing it than I thought it would be. So um, I had learned about Mary Bowser, who is the inspiration for Elle. I'm pretty sure I, I saw her on Coates' blog at some point. And I thought that would be an amazing heroine. So I kind of started with her and I started doing a lot more research and reading about Pinkertons and um, reading about a lot of the Scottish and German Union soldiers. And then I came across Timothy Webster, who was one of the Union's greatest spies. So, And then I thought it was just kind of like two puzzle pieces going together, like kind of the traits of these two people would make really great heroes and heroines and a couple. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Alyssa Cole, author of An Extraordinary Union, about the research that went into her interracial Civil War romance. So, Alyssa, um, this is really fascinating, but you can't possibly have done all of that research and written a manuscript in 30 days of NaNoWriMo. I mean, how, how were you juggling all of that? It, just a historical while doing... Uh, you know, what, 50,000 words in 30 days um, just seems like a tremendous amount of work. I think I just got really excited about it. And then it kind of became uh, not an obsession that I was like, so I did some research before. And in general, when I'm writing uh, my anything, but especially my historicals, I do research before. And as I'm going, I'll be researching along the way, and then I just kind of find things and like, oh, this would fit perfectly, or this is something that can happen to them, or what if instead of this happening, something... Now that I know that this one thing is possible, it means that this other thing is historically possible, too. So it's kind of like... Um, obviously, it was the first draft. The first draft was not <laughs> not anywhere near the final version well it was a little bit but like I, and after the first draft after NaNoWriMo I went through of course did revisions and as I wrote and rewrote and researched and learned more um, more went into the story and how were you going about doing the research were you uh were you going to libraries were you researching online um, a lot of it was online research, um, also ordering books from Amazon. Um, a lot of one thing that I found really useful with the Civil War is that um, after the war, so many people wrote journals, so many soldiers, politicians and even everyday people wrote journals about explaining what happened to them or their experiences during the war that um, really help with giving a deeper setting for the story. Um, so I used all of that. And, um, you know, I think in a way, too, that if you're an American who absorbs pop culture or grew up watching the History Channel um, as a kid and you kind of have a baseline already with the Civil War. Hmm. I grew up I grew up in New York, so it wasn't like, you know, we were talking about the Civil War all the time or there were battlefields that I visited as a kid or anything like that. But I think there was always kind of a baseline idea for me to work with and to kind of figure out where I wanted to go and what kind of research that helped me like figure out what kind of research I needed to do or what I wanted to focus on. But the popular conception of the Civil War isn't going to focus very much on the accomplishments of black women. So how did yeah. you how did you research that in in particular? Because um, I know from from my own experience doing historical research, there are some stories that that just are very hard to unearth. Yeah. So this is the other thing. And when I say that um, we have this pop culture understanding in a way, the general pop culture understanding and how it guided me was like, I don't want to write about this. Like, I don't want to write about Scarlett O'Hara. I don't want to write about Southern Bells. I don't want to write about brother versus brother. When they were like, and this is the, the amazing thing about the Civil War is that there was so much going on all over the country, all over the continent. And it all gets kind of reduced to, you know, Southern Bells and brothers who had to fight each other and, the noble Confederate hero who didn't really want to have any slaves and things like those are the narratives that are generally popular that have been until very recently. And look, 
thankfully that's changing with shows like underground and things like that. But um, I, as far as researching, um, one of the things that helped is I think I was very lucky to start writing when I did because I feel like more scholarship was coming out um, there. And again, one of the more helpful things is that, and that I don't think in my experience so far hasn't always been in the actual scholarship and the thing that I found a lot of in um, just people's everyday recountings was, you know, the fact that slaves and freed black people, but particularly slaves were extremely helpful to the union. They passed on um, a lot of the more sensitive information that uh, other spies would not have been able to get was passed on just by, you know, regular everyday people because their masters didn't really see them as humans and didn't think that they should not have conversations around them. Um, so they would talk about, you know, troop movement. They would talk about, uh, you know, trying things with the blockade and political things. And then the slaves would then go and find, if they were just not a part of any secret society or any organized group of collecting information, they would see a union soldier and say, hey, this is what I know. So one of the things that I hope to talk about more with uh, this series is that like nearly every intelligence source, um, union intelligence source cited during that time talks about the importance of the information gathered from, from slaves. Um, I believe it was called Black Dispatches that was the name they gave to the information they got from um, slaves and free black. So, so um, a lot of that came up, like when you're reading these accounts of, for example, prisoners escaping or people passing through, like it's kind of in the background, but you begin to see a pattern of like, oh, these people were helped by slaves. These people were helped by slaves. These people were helped by slaves. And um, you start to be able to piece things together. And it's incredible that uh, characters like these are historically in, in books live alongside the characters, say, in Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad. I have not yet read Underground uh, Railroad, unfortunately. Um, I wasn't reading any fiction set during the Civil War while I was writing. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Uh, to <laughs> to yeah. avoid it, um, subconsciously incorporating anything that was not from my own brain. And well, also wasn't from, you know, factual history. Sure. Yeah, that completely makes sense. And it seems like, though, uh, this time period has, uh, has uh, particularly captured your imagination since uh, this isn't just one novel, but one of a series for you. Yes, um, because I feel like there are so many different stories to tell. Um, there are so many different aspects. And also, I kind of want to capture the entirety of the war. Good um, luck. And- <laughs> <laughs> That's a tall order. At least, a, you know, a, a brief arc of the war and to show how that, um, how things changed and how kind of the different ways it affected different people during, uh, because I feel like that's the other thing too, that there's just this kind of unified narrative of what the civil war was when really there were so many different things going on, people in different places, like from town to town, there were different responses. There were different, um, you know, reactions to the Confederacy, to the Union and to slavery and emancipation. And how there are just so many different stories to tell. 
which is why it's sad that there is always there has been until recently um, a very kind of flat telling of this the story of the Civil War. So, can you tell us anything about the characters in the the upcoming installment? The characters in uh, A Hope Divided, which is book two in the Loyal League series, the hero is Malcolm's brother. His name is Ewan McCall, um, and he has been working as a Union counterintelligence agent, and he, the story starts with him in prison. Um, the heroine's name is Marley, and she is um, a freed black woman. She was born free. She is, her father is white. Um, she lives with her white family, though she was primarily raised by her black mother, who was also, who was a freed slave. And um, she is kind of a medical botanist and very into science, and um, Ewan is very into logic, but her mother was a root woman, and so she's kind of, her journey is kind of coming to terms with science versus the mystical, and um, they basically are in North Carolina, and the background is um, Southerners who were rebelling against the Confederacy. So uh, I guess a little, a quick elevator pitch would be Bell meets, uh, what was that Matthew McConaughey movie? <laughs> <laughs> You're asking the wrong person. I uh, but, oh, uh, free state of, oh yeah, so it's kind of Bell meets free state of Jones, even though the idea was, I had the idea for it before I knew those movies existed, but for, <laughs> for a succinct explanation. So, um, obviously, interracial romances really strike a chord with you. Why is that uh, a focus of yours? Well, for this series, uh, well, I married to, my husband is white. Mm. But um, I find it, I write all types of romance. Um, you know, I, I do have stories where all the character, where the hero and heroine are black. Um, generally, I'm trying to write black heroines. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a focus of mine because I think, you know, I like writing those stories. And also I think it's important for black women and young girls to have um, these kind of people to read about. And I say, even though I write romance that is technically for adults, I started reading adult books when I was seven or eight. And I noticed that there were not any, many people who looked like me in my mom's romances or even in thrillers or things like that. So um, when I write, I do try to think about, you know, the books are for everyone, but I also do want generally, I think as, you know, I hopefully will be writing for a while. I do plan on writing um, many types of people, but, um, but I think I'm also really interested in particularly in America, but also, you know, in other countries, just the way that, um, even though there are so many differences between people, there are so many interesting stories and there are so many interesting ways that people come together, even though in general, it seems that people live very segregated lives. Like, for example, the last novella I wrote was um, set in 1917 Harlem and it featured a Bengali Lasker who had jumped ship and a an African-American heroine who was a cabaret owner, but it's based on real stories because um, before the Immigration Act that uh, barred the Asiatic Barred Zone Act, which blocked people from Asia from coming to the United States, um, there was a population of South Asian 
um, sailors and merchants who live in the U.S., uh, then, you know, they basically, they were, but they were all men. For the most, I, There may have been some women, but I didn't find anything in my research. So then they intermarried into Black Puerto Rican and West Indian family, uh, families in the Bronx and New Orleans and things like that. But they're, you know, these are stories that you don't really see that much about. So then when you think about the history of South Asians in America, a lot of people, to most people, it seems that they only arrived in the 60s or the 70s after the, you know, the immigration laws were changed. So I think um, for me, it's a, it's a good way of, on the one hand, I do want to have black heroines. On the other hand, I do like showing all of the different aspects of America and how kind of how people have come together throughout history. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, what the experience of the romance writing community has been for you. And uh, also, if you have any advice for other people who want to write uh, romances featuring characters of color and particularly authors of color who are trying to enter what has um, for a long time been a very overwhelmingly white community. Um, I think my experience has been my experience has been in general pretty pretty good uh, I think I'm very lucky because I've met so many I think in general romance is um, a very kind and giving community um, so it's fairly the entry I won't say it's easy but you can find people to talk to you can find beta readers and critique partners. You can find people who are willing to talk to you a little and tell you about their experience and kind of help guide you where you want to go. Um, and I, before I lived here in Martinique, I lived in New York. I've only been here for two and a half years. Uh, and so there was a, rom- a great romance writing community there where I got to meet a lot of friends and kind of, you know, brainstorm and um, get integrate, learn more about the romance community and get integrated. Um, but um, what I would say to people of color who want to write romance is that, yes, it can be frustrating sometimes. I do think things are getting better. Um, it can, you know, but sometimes there are barriers that are not like, you know, people in Ku Klux Klan hoods standing around saying, sure, you publish your book. But there, I think one of the problems problems is you know systemic racism which ruins everything in life basically Mm -hmm. (laughs) but like you know people have a lot of ingrained ideas about who reads who reads what um you know the people who they do think read which generally they think um with romance in particular there has been a lot of pushback about well who is going to read this and who wants to read this and things like that what is marketable when, you know, in general, my readers come from any group you could think of, any age group or sex, gender, sexuality. Um, like, I really think that a lot of times what you have to put up with is that, um, you know, marketing and sales can be closed minded about who the audience is or they might not know who the audience is when the audience is actually everyone. Mm. So um, there is kind of, uh, you know, that can be frustrating at times. And for some people, you know, it's very hard and some people do give up. And I'm not saying that. And I think that they're entitled to that because 
you know, facing rejection after rejection and this kind of with when you know that there's something else going on can be very disheartening to people. But I do think that um, people should keep trying. They should find their, if they have a local RWA chapter. Or for me, honestly, Twitter and social social media is a great place for romance writers. There's a, you know, most, I won't say most, but a lot of romance writers are on Twitter and they're like, you know, weekly chats and like, um, RW chat, hashtag RW chat is a great place for beginner romance writers. I think it's every Sunday night, but mm-hmm. if you search hashtag RW chat, um, which is romance writer chat, uh, it's like people just sharing their experiences and like their guided questions that like with a different topic each week. Um, but I think just kind of keep trying and also find the most important thing is to find friends, find people who have your back and who you can talk to about anything with uh, writing wise. And, you know, like in any friendship, you will find some people you think you can or people who are not there for that particular thing. But I think in general, just having a core group of people or a couple of friends who understand romance and how romance is different from other literary genres and um, know what's going on and kind of can support you as you make your journey into becoming a published author. Um, That's invaluable. And, you know, friends, friends are invaluable in any sense, but especially, I think, um, in writing, because writing can be a very lonely, kind of intense thing, and you need to have people that you can talk about it with. And sometimes when you're a romance writer, if you have a friend who writes in a different genre, who writes literary fiction or something else, it's not always going to be easy to talk to them about it, because they're different uh there are some differences and also some people still don't still look down on romance a little bit so find people who like romance to talk about it and talk about it with them read as many romances as you can because you really you know whatever you're going to write you should be reading a ton of it um just to get more to kind of get the architecture down and like that's not to say you are copying anyone else, but there's a kind of emotional uh, path that most romances take, no matter what they're about. And you need to kind of know how to feel that before you can write it and have it, uh, you know, have your story resonate with people. We've been talking with Alyssa Cole, and you can find her book, An Extraordinary Union, in stores right now. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week as we resume our regular broadcast schedule with an interview with Isabel Allende. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 